Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. When I come out at night to see a few, uh, well, it's always great to see everyone here, but it's uh, a little bit more unusual to see some younger faces. So uh, welcome. We'll see if we can keep you focused for the next little bit. Um, in the flyer that I gave out, uh, or the, the advertisement for the talk, there was sort of a, a, a subtitle, not only why Yiddish matters, but why Yiddish matters through the prism of, of a particular figure. Sort of, we're going to do a, a type of literary or poetic biography tonight through one Yiddish figure that I'm sure most people who aren't very um, sort of current uh, on Yiddish literary matters, some of you may not have heard of, but I think offers us a way to think through this question of why Yiddish matters. I think through it a lot because not only do I uh, spend a lot of time with 18-year-olds, 18 to 22-year-olds in class, but I have an 18-year-old and I have a 16-year-old and I see nowadays uh, the degree to which the way young people read and how we read has become so attenuated. Our attention span has become a, a lot less focused and the ability to consider what uh, not only high art is, but what, what Jewish art or artistry might have been and what its role might have been historically has also become uh, far less focused. So I really wanted to talk about this one figure um, by the name of Sutzkever. In the Yiddish world, he doesn't need uh, his first name. But I've spent most of the past 25 years working on uh, this writer. Uh, not only writing a biography of a youth movement that he was part of, and we'll get to that uh, in a moment, but also uh, just finished translating, was about to submit in about a week, uh, his memoir of the Vilna Ghetto, which he wrote in 1946 in Moscow after having been rescued uh, from the partisan forests after his own escape from Vilna uh, just before its destruction. And this was a Yiddish memoir that came out simultaneously in Moscow and in Paris, and it becomes not only one of the earliest memoirs to describe the destruction of a major Jewish city, but it becomes perhaps the initiation for what comes later to be known as Holocaust literature. So we have a way of thinking through the life of this writer uh, that takes him from a childhood in interwar Poland, when Yiddish is at its peak culturally and in terms of its speakers, through what Yiddish speakers call the Chorben, nowadays we call the Holocaust, uh, and then through his escape from Europe, bringing him to the Yiddish world of the Soviet Union, and ultimately uh, to Tel Aviv, where he settles for the remainder of his career. So in some ways, thinking about Sutzkever helps us think through not only what Yiddish was, what Yiddish could be, but also some of the great and most dramatic and tragic events of the Jewish 20th century. And that's what I want to do, maybe for the next hour or so, and then I can open up uh, questions. Don't be intimidated by my notes. I always like quoting. Uh, it, the opportunities to hear people talk about Yiddish are few and far between. How many people here know some Yiddish? A little bit? So it's a, a good opportunity to hear a little bit of Yiddish. How many of you have heard of Sutzkever? No one. 
So I thought uh, what I would do, these are three uh, English translations of Sutzkever's poetry. Uh, the last one is by Benjamin Harshav, the late Binyamin Harshav of Yale. Uh, this by a scholar, Heather Valencia. And this one just came out from uh, SUNY, State University of New York Press. And I wrote uh, the introduction for this small collection of his poems. And I thought I would start by just reading uh, the first pages of that introduction to you for you to get a sense of my own relationship to Sutzkever and then we'll, we'll, we'll move on and, and go through his life. So I start uh, the introduction to this book as follows. Uh, in many ways, I owe my career to Avram Sutzkever. He was my living link to what Lucy Davidovich referred to as that place and time, a world in which one's expression of Jewishness and one's engagement with the world were synonymous with the project of modern Yiddish culture. In the summer of 1994, when I called on Sutzkever in his modest apartment on Moshe Sharet Street in Tel Aviv, after having spent a semester studying his work at McGill University, he was excited to learn more and ask questions that animated the newest generation of Yiddish studies scholars. And though he was not in the best of health, our conversation about his earliest years as a poet in Vilna energized him in ways that enlivened me even more. He leaned forward in his chair when he was discussing the antics of his poet colleagues in the literary group Jung Vilna, Young Vilna, and young love consummated over books and strolls along the Valia River. How strange I remember thinking to myself at that time to feel as if I had been born too late. By all rational measures, I was the fortunate one, raised in the freedom of Canada, with the privilege of never knowing the humiliations, the terrors, and ultimately the mass murder that ended the first stage of Sutzkever's career in Poland. However, Sutzkever possessed something that neither I nor any of my contemporaries in North America had, birth into a Jewish language. Having come to my advanced study of Yiddish belatedly, it occurred to me that there was something deeply compelling about a life lived in Jewish languages and through which one could engage in dialogue with the world. Sutzkever might have sensed this himself when he handed me his newest volume of Yiddish poetry and did a little inscription in it that said, for my young friend, Kami, ending with a doodle of a self-portrait and a self-confident flourish of a signature. And his career had been marked at various moments as a mentor, and I appreciated this encouraging gesture. And as it happens, after that summer and after that meeting, I dedicated the rest of my academic career to studying his work, an environment I refer to elsewhere as when Yiddish was young. And the news of his death almost 16 years later affected me in ways that I could not have even expected, as if my own youth had ended with him. I had now matured into the scholarly generation responsible for interpretation and transmission of a cultural and literary legacy that could no longer rely on him or on his fellow Yiddish speakers as its standard bearer. And I think this is the way I begin this uh, introduction to his work, because I think every introduction, in a way, frames a text for the newest generation of readers and needs to draw them into the importance of something. I was taught very early on in my graduate education, don't teach anything that you don't believe in. So even a text that you might not like on a personal level, you have to have something in it so you can give the text or the writer or the author a, a fighting chance to prove their point. And I think one of the things that's so interesting about this and why I write on this is it's, I'm really interested in challenging certain mythologies of Yiddish that see interest in Yiddish or Yiddish itself as somehow old. 
Nowadays, Yiddish is oftentimes associated with that which is dead or that which is dying, with um, old age. But of course, Yiddish has all of those elements to it, but Yiddish was also young. And that's why I call the book that I'm writing now When Yiddish Was Young. There was a time and there was a place when one could be born into Yiddish, when one could be schooled in Yiddish, when one could learn mathematics in Yiddish, when one could go hiking in Yiddish, when there were youth clubs in Yiddish, where one could get married in Yiddish, where one gave birth and made love in Yiddish, and of course the whole world could exist in Yiddish. And we need to in some ways recuperate that environment, not only of when Yiddish was young, but also when Yiddish was stable. So this becomes part of an archeology span of culture, part of a recuperative um, element of culture. So Sutzkeper himself was born in 1913 on the eve of war, and he experienced almost all the tragedies that Jews experienced in the 20th century, from the destruction of his village where he was born in present-day Belarus, to exile during first war, the First World War to Siberia, where he spent his earliest childhood days as a refugee along the Irtysh River, spending time with native Kyrgyzi tribesmen learning their rhythms and learning their musicality. And that then allowed him, after the war, to return to a ruined village, eventually settle in Vilna, and eventually become part of this interwar modernist generation that reinvented and made Yiddish modern, made it relevant to a modern age, and brought Jews into modernity, and showed Jews that you could do in Yiddish not only what European literatures and poetry were doing, but you could do it even better. You could be even more accomplished than that. And this is where he really makes his mark as a young writer. And at one point, Sutzkever was asked when he moved to Tel Aviv, why do you insist in continuing to write in Yiddish in the Hebrew-speaking homeland? After all, you will have no readers here. And he answered in the following way through a poem called Yiddish. Shall I start from the beginning? Shall I let myself be translated alive? Shall I plant my tongue? What kind of joke preaches that my mother tongue should set forever? If you know exactly where this language will set, please show me. If so, I shall go there. I shall open my mouth and like a lion, I will swallow the language as it sets and wake all the future generations with my roar. So really this talk today, our discussion over the next little bit, is to discuss what he means by this roar by this impossibility of set, a setting language, a language that sets like the sun, and of being willing to continue to swallow that, that language and to speak it and to iterate it for future generations, even if it's for those last uh, readers. So after spending those early years in Siberia, Sutzkever returns to Vilna, uh, which at the time is the unofficial capital of the unofficial country of Yiddishland. Although Warsaw has 10 times the amount of Jews as Vilna, and is the largest Jewish city in Europe and the largest Yiddish-speaking city in, the, in Europe, Vilna has something that other scholars call genius of place. And when we talk about genius of place, what we mean here is a city that is committed to the cultural production, that is committed not only to rabbinic culture, but is also committed to modern Jewish culture, that is as committed to uh, the politics of the street, whether that be socialist Bundism, or Jewish communism, or various manifestations of left-wing to right-wing Zionism, to different manifestations of Yiddish literary culture, including being the host and the site of the only institute for the advanced study of Yiddish 
in Europe at the time, YIVO, the Yiddische Wissenschaftlicher Institut, the Yiddish Scientific Institute. So he comes of age in really one of the best places where a poet can gain an education. And early on, he falls in with, uh, this is amazing when you think of it, the Yiddish Scientific Institute was headed by a linguist. The linguist had a doctorate from a major European university. Now, nowadays, what do most professors do at the end of the day? They go home, they continue their writing, you know, they think. But in those days, to be a professor, to be someone who was involved in the Yiddish Scientific Institute also meant giving back to the community. And it was Weinreich who founded a nonpartisan Yiddish scouting organization for young Jews. He said the street was becoming too politically engaged. Jews and Jewish society were becoming too divided. And he wanted Yiddish to become that integrative force once again. So he says, instead of sending Jews to all the socialist clubs, or to the communist club, or to the left-wing Zionist club, or the right-wing Zionist club, why not send them just to a Yiddish scouting club? And it's important to remember why they had to go to a Yiddish scouting club. It's because the Polish scouting movement would not accept Jews. So you needed these alternatives. So Weinreich, who is a major scholar in the world, founds what's known as the B, Bin. And he takes all these young men, young women, and teaches them that in order to claim Eastern Europe as your own, you need to know it. You need to know it not only by walking it, but you need to know it linguistically. You need to know it culturally. This becomes known as Landkentenisch, the knowledge of the landscape. By walking the land, by living in the land, by camping in the land, by singing in the land, this then becomes as much the inheritance of the Jews of Eastern Europe as it does to those, who, uh, those others who live in these spaces, whether it be the Poles or the Ukrainians or, or others. And it's Max Weinreich who takes Sutzkever to a small hill overlooking the city of Vilna and makes him swear an oath of loyalty to Yiddish culture. Sort of interesting when you think about this. And he dresses him in the outfit of the Yiddish scouts. You know, rucksack, brown suit, uh, compass, uh, pocket knife, all the things that you would need to look like a scout. And he says to this very slight, bespect uh, bespectacled uh, young man, swear the following oath. I swear to serve Yiddish culture. I swear to serve those around me. When you think of what it means to have a cultural leader, for a city to have leaders who are willing to take an interest in young people. This is what Vilna was all about. This is why they say that this community had genius of place. And Sutzkever never forgot that oath. It's unbelievable. How many things do kids pledge to their friends or to one another when they're young people, and then as they get older, they forget? But that idea of I pledge to serve the Yiddish-speaking community, I pledge to serve the Yiddish world, becomes something that he actually takes literally not just something as a lark, but something that then organizes his entire life's mission and allows him to turn to Yiddish as a way, I'd like to call it, as a form of secular liturgy. So you have, at this time, Sutzkever as a young man in this scouting movement actually writing hiking songs in Yiddish. Among his first lyrics are these hiking songs, including, I have this uh, lovely one that he wrote in 1931 at a winter camp, Hey, hey, brave Bienen, so hey, hey, brave bees. Unser Weg is unser Himmel, unser Lied is unser Willen, ständig singen, ständig spielen. 
It's great. It's youthful. You know, it's not going to win any uh, poetry awards, but, you know, hey, brave bees, our, our, our path, our way is, is set out in our hymn. Our song is our will. We should always sing. We should always play. And I think that sometimes things that are most simple can have a complexity of this own. This sort of, you see in Sutzkover, even in 1931, at an interwar period that's just on the edge of the rise of Nazism, where communism is already on the roll just across the border, where Polish nativism is already uh, all around one. You have him writing in Yiddish, not woe is me, not woe is me, what's going to become of my community, what's going to become of Yiddish. But we should always sing, we should always play, we should always dance, we should always not forget what our will is. And this then brings us to this moment where Sutzkofer uh, applies for membership in what is coming to the fore in the early, late 1920s, early 1930s, Jungvilna. And you can see by their faces, because they wear suits and not sweatshirts, they look a little bit older than they are, but we're talking about people who are in their late teens or early 20s, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. And Sutzkofer is over here, this guy right there, and he applies this greatest, this, this man who will become the greatest Yiddish poet of the 20th century, applies for membership in this movement called Jung Vilna, and he is rejected. He's re <laughs> it is kind of sad, but it's actually great because it says they had their own standard. It wasn't just that anyone, you know, who wanted to be a poet could be a poet, but why was he rejected? Why do you think he was rejected? Was it because he was ba a bad poet? Guess. No. He was rejected because he wasn't politicized enough. That at the time, the demand for Yiddish poetry was to respond to the needs of the Jewish street. He wasn't sufficiently progressive in his politics, meaning politically progressive, not sufficiently leftist. He wasn't interested in writing about poverty. He wasn't interested in writing about workers. He wasn't interested in writing about doom and gloom. No, he came to his application for Jung Vilna with a poem about someone falling in love in Siberia called the love song of Braska B. And the people sitting like you, when he's reading his poem, are listening to this guy saying, what in the world is he writing about? And later in his career, a decade later, when he finds himself in the Vilna ghetto with someone else who had been there at the time, the great Yiddish poet Shmerka Kaczerginski, Kaczerginski at the time remembers uh, rejecting Sutzkever and he writes the following about this. We permitted him eventually entry into Jung Vilna, but I can't say any of us were particularly close to him. Our eyes were accustomed to well-trodden paths. Nature, which is what Sutzkever wrote about, was the narrowest, the slightest path in our art. But for Sutzkever, nature was the natural element of the broadest highway, and we feared that. Why should we be interested in the green of the earth and in the blue of the sky, when grayness and darkness were our reality. His perspective was always one of spring and always one of youth. He always seemed younger because of his writing than his actual age. So you see here something very interesting, that everyone else there is writing about the times, and Sutzkever transforms Yiddish into transcending the moment. He ties himself into writing about art and trees and grass and bird, going back to a romantic moment and thinking that if you write about that, then nothing that Yiddish is 
can be affected by what's going on in the temporal world. So one of the first poems he publishes early on as a member of this group is a poem called Here I Am. I'll read you just the first part um, in uh, English. Here I am, blooming as big as I am, stung with songs as by fiery bees. I heard you calling me from the shining dawn and rushed to you through night and dust and sweat. For those of us um, who know uh, uh, even, even the tiniest bit of Jewish text, when you begin a poem called Here I Am, what is that hearkening? What word? Hineni, right? Who said Hineni at various points? So Avram Avinu, Moshe, you know, some pretty big, big, big names. And what are they responding to when they say Hineni? God. So imagine being a, you know, older teenager trying to start out in Yiddish poetry and making a name for yourself and being bold enough to begin one of your first sort of serious poems by saying, in Yiddish, Ot Hineni, here I am. But who's calling you in 1932, 33, 34? Sutzkover is not being called by God. His Hineni response is to the muse of art, to the muse of Jewish art itself. And that's who he's responding to. That's, his, that's the responsibility of the young Yiddish poet. So he was a very anomalous writer, even in Vilna at the time. And you see the first two journals of Jung Vilna, some of the iconography. Here you have, in 1934, for instance, the group puts out a journal. You see the old crooked uh, streets of the old town Vilna with the modern factories of the new town. Here you see a very, very modernist figure that sort of suggests, but, but whose feet are rooted in the city, right? So you have here an attempt to sort of con to, to convey to readers that we are with it. We are going to respond to your needs. And if you open this up, these are stories and poems about the plight, the everyday plight of individual residents, not only of Vilna, but of the Jews of Eastern Europe itself, themselves. Sutzkever isn't interested in writing that way. So even though he's a member of this group, he finds a different literary group who he becomes sort of adopted by which is quite interesting because that literary group is based in New York. They're a group of Yiddish writers based in New York known as the Inzichisten, the introspectivists. And they are even more modernist in terms of their commitments. But why I'm mentioning this is that he's simultaneously both local and already transnational, already global. He's already in two different worlds. And what might be even frightening, surprising to us, is that at one point, he writes to one of those fellow writers in New York. And remember, the, the writers in New York by the 1930s are already feeling as if they're rapidly losing their readership, right? They're, they're writing the same thing that the great Hebrew poet uh, Yud Lamed Gordon would write in the late 19th century when he was writing Hebrew poetry, Le Mianiamel, right? For whom am I toiling? Who is going to read this? So they can say our writing could be the best literature ever produced. But if there are no more Yiddish readers, especially if there are no young Yiddish readers, who's going to read that? As opposed to someone living in Vilna, like Sutzkever. Imagine being in a world where everyone on the street that you know speaks Yiddish and could potentially be your reader. Yet what does Sutzkever write to them? Totally counterintuitive in a letter 1935. It's no accident that I was destined to write to you, he writes. The atmosphere in which I find myself here as a young writer in Poland is horrible. I, one can simply choke from the poison in the air, and this is the line that I want you to focus on, 
there is nobody here for me to talk to. How is it possible that in one of the great capitals of Yiddish, there is no one there for him to talk to? So again, we see a figure who's very much connected to his community, but is also a singular figure on his own, trying to uh, find his own way and trying to find his own voice. And it's then that he starts publishing. He has two books that come out before the war. Uh, one of them, this is the second one, published in 1940, Valdix, which is a whole book about a guy who gets lost in a forest and walks among trees. 1940, I remind you. The Jews of Warsaw are already under Nazi occupation. And what does Sutzkever write about? Not the war, not Nazis, not anti-Semitism, not any of the things that you might have thought about. No, he writes about birds, he writes about grass, he writes about trees. Uh, and in his earlier book, his first book, called Lieder, literally poems, or literally songs, uh, he has a poem within that book, an epic poem called Sibir, Siberia. But this is not a poem about Siberia the way we think of it. It's not a poem about Siberia, some forlorn, terrible place where they send political prisoners, where it's freezing cold and it's miserable and you're only longing to get somewhere else. No, Sutzkever's Siberia is an amazing world of light, of sound, where the snow itself is the blank page that invites the birth of a poet. And not only that, after the war, in the 50s, it's reproduced on its own with art by Marc Chagall. And here you see Marc Chagall, of course, quite right, signing it. Chagall himself was extremely involved uh, in Yiddish modernism. He designed, in the late teens and early 20s, some of the art and some of the drawings for the most important Yiddish works by those who would become great Soviet Yiddish poets. So Chagall's Yiddish period is something that perhaps not everyone uh, recognizes. So Schiffer, what I'm trying to suggest, saw himself as in some ways an apolitical writer. When people said, Sutzkever, get with it, write about the times, you know what he answered them? The sun is my flag and words are my anchor. This is a guy who didn't care about offending people, right? You think I'm gonna, you, all of you wanna march under banners? The sun is my banner. And the anchor, you know what the flag is? It's that the, the, the words are my anchor, not, 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 not politics. Uh, he wrote at another point at the same moment, 1940, do not love gray time. And it's quite amazing to think of this book, one of the last published in Eastern Europe, in all of Yiddish literature, that he could write in 1940, using the Hebrew word, one of the names for God. Everything is precious for my verse, and in everything I come across a splinter of eternity. And notice how he rhymes mein Strof, my verse, with Ein Sof, right? The combination of the act of writing poetry and the act of immortalization, the act that I was talking about earlier of transcendence. And in that volume of 1940, the center poem if you were to open up the book, the main poem that he writes is a poem called In a Poet's Tavern. And he writes it as a shtoch because he went to Warsaw a few years earlier and he basically told the Warsaw Yiddish Writers Association, which was the biggest and most important in Europe, I don't think what you're writing is valuable. It's not good literature. You become too political. And whenever art serves politics, it becomes bad. 
And they got really, really angry at him and said, who is this Jungach from Vilna telling us what's good, what's bad? We've never heard of this guy. Who the hell does he think he is? So he writes back and he has to publish a poem to sort of defend himself. And he writes this poem about him being in the tavern, in the bar, shooting his mouth off, maybe having uh, had one too many to drink, talking about poetry. And people think this is going to be, you know, his way of, you know, perhaps apologizing. But no, he writes, Ich bin a Cholimling, a Reuber von Zeit. Ich glebe, es ist gedeiht zu sein, a Gleber und a Leuber. I'm a dreamer, a thief of time. That is not a prisoner of time, but I'm stealing time. I believe that it's worth being someone who believes and someone who praises. And I can't tell you how important these lines are to me at this moment where so many people in our culture, especially young people, are cynical, right? We're taught to be cynical, not to believe anything, that everything somehow is a game, everything's a satire, everything's an irony, everyone's trying to pull one over on you, politics can't be trusted, society can't be trusted. And here we have someone at a time when really there was a reason to be cynical, writing, I am a thief of time, and I believe dispositionally we have a choice, and it's better to love, it's better to praise, it's better to believe. And he writes at, in the end of that poem, these are most amazing lines, and I'll read them to you just uh, in Yiddish so you can hear the rhythm. So he's, they're sitting there in the tavern playing cards, and they've been there all night, and the sun is about to dawn. Right? The sun is going to come up and he's going to see the sun in the window. And he writes the following. Wer kriegt das Dorten in Fenster? Wemens reuter Kopf mit blonden Blick, mit euchgeklauten, was merkt die blaue Schottens ab? Chaverim, wacht auf die Korten und klettert auf die Bänke rauf. Die Sonne geht auf, die Sonne geht auf, geht auf, geht auf mit Wunderneim. Chaverim, gieß die Bechers an, lachaim vor der Sonne, lachaim. Vor unser Sonnen von... Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Who's creeping there? I'm translating. What's that in the window? Whose red head with the blonde, bright gaze is wiping away the dark evening shadows? He's talking about the sun rising. Friends, toss away your cards. Climb on the benches. The sun is rising, the sun is rising. Rising, rising with wonder anew. Friends, refill your glasses. Cheers, l'chaim, to the sun, to life, to our zuninfon, to our sun banner, to our sun flag. That is not politics, but art, nature, life, regenerative forces, l'chaim. 1940. This comes out um, in book form. Scratching their heads, right? Uh, this is the young Sutzkever on the eve of war. A new movie has just been released, a biographical movie called Black Honey. There's, an inch, uh, there's a really great translation. If any of you can get this film for a local Jewish film festival, it's a great movie that uh, will provide you another uh, insight into Sutzkever's life. But of course, then there's the next chapter. And one would think that because Sutzkever was so into nature, so into joy, so into regeneration, that an event like the Chorben would have in some way reduced what he was able to do. One would think that because he wasn't able to be 
in Spahn, sort of in the saddle with his fellow writers politically, that somehow he just would have melted away and quieted away. No. He remembered the pledge that he gave to Weinreich. And Sutzkever becomes, I would argue, the most important Jewish writer to write about the Holocaust in Yiddish, period. I can name others who are equally important, but if we're looking at his total lifespan and what he's been able to write, Sutzkever spends the entire time that the Vilna Ghetto exists in the Vilna Ghetto, not writing only poetry, but also joining the underground partisan movement. So he joins and he's known to be a partisan fighter. He becomes part of the Papier Brigade, the Paper Brigade. There's a wonderful new book about this by David Fishman of the Jewish Theological Seminary, where he is charged with fellow Jewish intellectuals. Part of his slave labor job is to march every day to the Yiddish Scientific Institute, where some of the great treasures from the libraries of Eastern Europe have been gathered. And they are told, you should choose the best stuff, and we're going to send that to Frankfurt, to a future museum, to a world without Jews, and the rest of it we're going to destroy. What Sutzkever and his fellow intellectuals do is try to save the best stuff, and in some cases to even bury it on their body, uh, uh, attach it to their bodies, and smuggle it in, into the Vilna ghetto. Some of these things are found after the war, including his own poetry that he writes um, about this experience including some of his own ma uh, manuscripts that he writes after. You see that this is dated the 9th of April, 1943, and this is a poem called Zum Bruder, to my brother. So Zuzikofer writes these amazing, amazing, amazing poems that are not only confessional poems about his mother who dies or about his infant son who's poisoned only minutes after its birth in the ghetto hospital or many of the people uh, who are his own friends in Jung Vilna who he had known who disappear in the firing squad pits of, of the Ponari forest. But he also writes these grand epics what's, for the time. What's his reaction to his young son being poisoned? Uh, poetically, yeah. he writes a poem called Sum Kind, to my child. But one would think that that would complete, I mean, obviously he was personally devastated. But in terms of what comes out, um, it's a good question that you ask. He writes the following lyrics to that poem, Sum Kind. Because of hunger or because of great love, your mother will bear witness. I wanted to swallow you, child, when I felt your tiny body cooling in my hands like a cup of warm tea. Neither stranger were you nor guest. On our earth, one only births oneself. One links oneself into rings, and the rings then become chains. Child, the word for you would be love, but without words, you are also love the seed of dream. How can you shut your eyes, leaving me here in the dark world of snow that you've shrugged off? I wanted to swallow you, child, to taste the future awaiting me. Maybe you will blossom again in my veins. That's his response. I mean, it's, a, it's incredible. And he goes on in the ghetto to win the ghetto prize for the best poem. Uh, of the year for a, another poem that I think is definitely uh, related to that incident, a poem called Keberkind, Grave Child, which is about a woman who's uh, hiding in the old Jewish cemetery uh, and gives birth to a child against Nazi law. 
and when the child is being born, the gravedigger is there, and, the, and the, the gravedigger yells, the child must live, the child must live. There's proto-messianic um, elements to that. That poem wins him an award in the Vilna Ghetto. Another poem that he writes called Kol Nidre is taken out of the ghetto by a courier, and Sutzkever says, get this poem to the Yiddish writers in Moscow. Because, of course, Moscow is fighting the Nazis. And that poem makes it through the partisan forest, through partisan channels, and makes it to none other than the great Yiddish poet Peretz Markish, and eventually into the hands of Ilya Ehrenberg, who has it translated, there's a reading of it, and eventually it will be published, including an article after Sutzkever is rescued, in the pages of Pravda, in Russian, called, uh, which makes Sutzkever essentially a household name. So we have here someone who sort of lives poetry. It's not only the poetry is important to him, he lives poetry. And if this works, let's just listen to his own voice talking about this. We'll see if this works. Let him talk for two seconds about his own poetry. Oh, you can't see this. So he's saying the greatest recognition that I've ever received for poetry was the prize that I received in the Vilna ghetto for my poem, Grave Child. The prize was a piece of parchment that was signed by all the Yiddish and Hebrew writers who were still alive in the ghetto, along with a gold 10-ruble coin. I became convinced of how strong is the strength of a poem, how strong the rhythm of a poem can be in March 1944. When I was in the woods with other Jewish partisans and had to cross a minefield, a field that had been sowed with mines, and no one knew where the mines were in the field. I saw people blown apart. I saw a bird which had no common sense and had apparently set itself down on one of those mines and was blown apart. How? What direction should I turn? Where do I even think of placing my foot? One movement is death. Not stepping is life. So I internalized one of my own poetic rhythms. And by following the rhythm of a poem I had written, I traveled for a kilometer through the minefield and made it out. And maybe now you could remind me of what melody it was, what the rhythm of the poem was. I don't remember. Not important. I mean, that's an amazing story when we think of, um, when we think of that, right? How does he think his life was saved? By reciting one of his own poems and taking a step to the rhythm in which that poem was written. So this is someone who I'm trying to chart sees Yiddish as sort of the very essence, and Yiddish poetry is the very essence of what it means to not only be a writer in pre-war Vilna, but what we would now, now call someone uh, with cultural resistance, who's using culture and not only arms to resist. And when he leaves uh, Vilna, and he makes it eventually, and rescued, I said, uh, goes to the Soviet Union. He spends uh, a little more than two years 
in Moscow, uh, writes a memoir of the Vilna ghetto while they, between there and between going back to Vilna after its liberation. Uh, and that'll soon, hopefully within the, a year, be out and you'll be able to read that uh, for yourselves. And uh, he returns to the city when it's liberated in July 1944 and immediately gets to work helping other Yiddish writers and Jewish intellectuals to discover many of the things that they themselves had buried before the war, including some of his own manuscripts and including some of the other memoirs that were written by the great um, inhabitants of the Vilna Ghetto. And it's only uh, later that the Soviets invite Sutskever to testify on behalf of Soviet Jewry at the Nuremberg trials. And this is an image of Sutskever at the Nuremberg war crime trials, standing up, and he refuses the judge's invitation, which wasn't really an invitation, it was sort of sit down. He refuses to sit down. He gives his entire testimony standing up. And he writes in one of his memoiristic pieces later, I insisted on standing up because standing, my testimony was like, saying, was like saying Kaddish over the dead. And he speaks in the same cadence that you just heard him speak. But eventually he realizes that in the same way that Yiddish did not have a future under one totalitarian regime, it would not have a future under a second totalitarian regime. And although he would have been welcome to stay in Moscow and to join the Soviet Yiddish writers who themselves were purged by Stalin a short time later in 1952. Sutskever decides to take his repatriation, goes back to Łódź, goes to Paris, and eventually will make it to Tel Aviv. But not before he writes one final epic poem that he calls Zpoilen, to Poland. And this is a poem of bitterness, a poem in which he quotes Polish poetry itself. And where does he imagine himself going while he's walking the streets of destroyed Warsaw now? He imagines himself going to the Okapova Street Cemetery, the great Jewish cemetery that's still intact in Warsaw, and stands before the grave of the great Yiddish prose writer Peretz, the Yiddish writer Dinason, and the tomb of Anski, author of the drama The Dybbuk. And on the walls of Peretz's tomb, what is written there? Words from his great play, The Golden Akate, The Golden Chain, about a Hasidic dynasty in which a rabbi, a rebbe, refuses to make Havdalah, which is, for his followers, an impossibility. You go to the rebbe to hear Havdalah so you can begin your week. If there's no Havdalah, you can't continue in a Shabbos state all along. And the rebbe says, no, I'm not interested in small Jews. I'm interested in great Jews. I'm interested in Shabbos Dika, Yontav Dika Yidin, Sabbath and festival Jews. And I won't make Havdalah until those Jews come about. He writes this before World War I. And when he's buried, those words are etched onto the side of his tomb. And Sutzkever <laughs> imagines himself going to the tomb on the eve of his departure from Eastern Europe forever, on the long journey that it would take him to mandate Palestine. And he says, how can I leave this tomb here? And he writes the following lyrics. Uh, it's amazing. How can I leave behind all that there was in this valley of sorrow? How can I raise a monument to the total emptiness here? What can I do for a sign to appear that will show my grandchild's grandchild? He's really thinking ahead into the future. My grandchild's grandchild, all of our yesterdays tomorrow. What can I do now 
so that in six or seven generations, tomorrow, they will be able to understand all of our yesterdays. And in that poem, he imagines taking the tomb of Peretz and Anski and Dinason on his shoulder and bringing it with him on his travels. He cannot imagine leaving them there. But he does make it to Palestine in 1947. And at that moment, he writes the following. I, who saw the destruction of my people, felt that we, the small remnant of Yiddish writers, could, with the power of our pen, put in a claim for the blood of Ponar. But how could we and must we put in our claim for the burning of our language on the bonfires? How? By giving it rebirth in the land of our ascent. That is, for Sutzkever, it was obvious that for a Jewish writer writing in a Jewish language, you went to a place where there were other Jews and where the aleph base, the alphabet of Jewish languages was everywhere. And he goes to the land of Israel and reinvents himself as a Yiddish writer there. And what does he do as soon as he gets there? I'll come back to this in a moment. He establishes in 1939 this journal. Now you'll know why I told the story. A journal called The Golden Akate, The Golden Chain. He names it after parrots. So in fact, in the poem that he wrote to Poilin when he says goodbye saying, I'm going to bring the tomb here, he does. And he establishes the most important Yiddish literary and cultural journal that publishes almost until his death in his 90s, from 1949, and at a time where Israel is just establishing itself and is hyper-Hebraized and is hyper-Zionist. He marches into the offices of the Histadrut, the Zionist labor union, not a huge friend of Yiddish, and says, not only am I planning on starting a Yiddish journal in Tel Aviv, but you're going to fund it. And they do, because now he has a reputation as someone who testified at Nuremberg. Now he has a reputation as someone who was a partisan fighter. Now he has a reputation as someone who survived the Vilna Ghetto. And it reestablishes Tel Aviv, of all places, as one of the post-war global centers of Yiddish culture. We must not assimilate into Israel, he writes. We must assimilate Israel into ourselves. And if the destruction was sung about in Yiddish, so too must the revival. And he goes on, one of the first articles I published, because I thought it was important to have this in the Yiddish sphere, was an article about Sutzkover's poems of Zion, Yiddish poems of Zion, in which he goes out uh, for a number of years and writes poems not only about the landscape of the land of Israel, but also about the people of the land of Israel, writing about Jerusalem, where he says you can come face to face uh, with eternity. The first poem that he publishes or the first poem that's published in his multi-volume collected poems, is a poem that he dates to his arrival in Israel, a poem that he calls Shehechianu. But it's not the traditional Shehechianu. It's a Shehechianu for a Yiddish poet that goes as follows. Wenn ich wollt nicht sein mit dir beinand, nicht ottemen das Glick und Vedo. Wenn ich wollt nicht brennen mit dem Land, wohl kann ich land in Chavle Leido. Wenn ich wollt erziehen noch meiner Kedo nicht mit Gebäuren mit dem Land, wo jeder Stendel ist mein Seder. Gesättigt wollt mich nicht das Bräut, das Wasser nicht gestillt mein Gummen, bis euch gegangen, ich wollt vergeut und bloß mein Denkschaft wollt gekommen. Now, there's a lot that one could say about this. Were I not at one with you, not breathing the joy and pain here? He's talking to the land itself. 
Were I not burning with the land, this land and its birth pangs, after my sacrifice over there? Were I not being reborn with the land where every pebble is my grandfather? Bread would not still my hunger. Water would not soothe my gums. I would have turned into a Gentile and expired. And only my longing would have come. And what's so interesting here is the word that he uses, fargoit. It's a neologism. It doesn't exist in Yiddish. He says, if I hadn't come here at this moment in Jewish history, I would have ingentiled myself. I would have evaporated. I would have assimilated away. And he creates this word that sort of contains the essence of exactly uh, what he wants to do for the rest of his career. And in Israel, he publishes an amazing array of things in addition to more than 100 issues of this journal. The uh, epic poem Geheimstadt that he already starts back uh, in Europe about 10 Jews who live in a uh, sewer underneath the Vilna ghetto. Or in Feierwogen, an epic poem about the establishment of the state of Israel. None other than Ben-Gurion himself says, were we only to have Hebrew poets who could write about the birth of Israel the way Sutzkever manages to write about the birth of Israel um, here. And I want to leave a few minutes for questions. So he goes on to strike certain bargains at the end of his life. He becomes far more philosophical, far more of an existential writer. This begins in the period after he writes these epic works, the period really 1974. And he writes the following that might be of interest to us. Inside me, a twig of sounds sways towards me, just as before. Inside me, rivers of blood are not a metaphor. Right? He's saying they're real. It's not just a metaphor. I have my veins. I have my own rivers of blood that are pumping through me. But there's also these metaphoric, historical rivers of blood that are also a part of me. And in writing about his mother and thinking about her, he writes, I myself am the memorial candle kindled by her fire. He doesn't need a yardside candle. He himself is the flaming candle, the burning candle. And she is the fire. She is the, is the material that, in fact, provides that with its energy. And when he recalls in another poem called Lieder von Togbuch, uh, po- poems from my diary, the unique inevitability of my mission, transforming the transformation back into their sources, transform the clumps of clay back into human faces, transform the isolated mysteries miles away from words into rays that reach the depths of tears. That is the shorthand for the life force that's part of his mission. Trees are made into wonderful paper, he writes, but I the reverse. I transform paper back into a tree, into a tree of life, and I will graft myself onto its roots till the dawn of my birdsong. This is someone, you know, functioning culturally, aesthetically, and I would argue spiritually on an entirely different level. This is the closest thing we have in Yiddish to religious poetry that's not religious, right? He's not writing religious poetry, but he is writing religious poetry. He's writing it on a spiritual level. And by locating eternity in things that are the most ephemeral, things that are tiny vestiges of life, of everyday life, that then becomes what is most important. In one of his most famous poems, Wer wird bleiben, was wird bleiben? What will remain? Who will remain? He doesn't provide some grand philosophical writing or a response about Jewish history. He writes the following. 
What will remain? Who will remain? Wind will remain. A film, a foam, a flimsy cloud, a single syllable, a blade of grass, a drop of wine, a drop of dew. That's what will remain. That's what beauty is all about. So by the last years of his career, Sutzkover invited readers to take stock alongside him of what he had tried to accomplish over a career that spanned uh, almost 70 years of his 97-year uh, life. And he came to very great clarity about what he had accomplished. I'll end with his words, and then we can, you can ask me any questions you want, either about him or about why Yiddish matters. Quote, and your very first dream visits you in a dream, right? He's already in his older age. And your very first dream visits you in a dream. And your very last dream is pledged back to the first one, concluding with the following. All that is past, experienced, previous, now floats through me and through my temples like twilight clouds in order to relive that which was outlived and to see again that which was seen. And I think that's why I titled tonight's talk, Why Yiddish Matters. Yiddish matters because Sutzkever made it matter. And it becomes one of the sources that we can not only investigate, interrogate, and understand Jewish experience, but one of the ways that we can also continue to celebrate it. Thank you. OK, we're right on schedule. Questions about anything that I said, or now it's time, because I, I know that when there are Yiddish events, people always have great Yiddish questions. Anything that you want to ask about the world of Yiddish, the world of Sutzkever, or anything else that's on your mind? Yes? The last three or four, maybe five poems were more modern. Yeah. Um, is there one publication that has those in English? I would say the most comprehensive um, so there's two ways. This one's out of print, but I still think it's, it's pretty comprehensive. A. Sutzkever's Selective Poetry and Prose. And I would say, I mean, all of them show a different side of Sutzkever, but if you want him from the beginning of his career to the end, then you might want to find a library used copy of Harshav's translation. Uh, Heather Valencia's translation is amazing. Uh, it's much more scholarly. It includes uh, a, a huge essay of hers at the end. It also includes a very interesting talk that Sutzkever gave at the Jewish Public Library in Montreal. And it also traces his career, but it's not as comprehensive as uh, Harshav's. Uh, this one, translated by the American uh, poet Richard Fine, is, uh, I would say, a poet selection. It's not necessarily all the stages of Sutzkever's career. Very, very minimal on uh, the pre-war and the Holocaust period, other than the poem Siberia. Uh, and it's much more Richard's own reading of why Sutzkever matters to him rather than a, an introductory reading for, for, for people who've never encountered him before. I asked that because there were three or four things you said at the end right. that were very, to me, simple, direct, the, 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 the poem about the tree turns to paper. Right. Paper yeah, you can find it in Harsha. You can really talk to young adults about that insofar as, well, what does that really mean? Yeah, it's always amazing to me when I teach. I, I'll, I'll be teaching Sutzkever this week, uh, actually, when I return on Wednesday and then the following week. And uh, my students, you know, most of the time when they're like, oh, we're reading a Yiddish poet. He's a man. <laughs> Obviously, he's died, so he's an older man, a dead man. Like, what, do we, what could we possibly have to learn from an older, now dead 
um, Yiddish male writer. It's like, uh, and, and the more I teach him, they can't get enough of him. Like his poetry in its modernist accomplishment but simplicity, they actually get it. They actually are thirsting for voices like this in their own culture. And he provides them a shorthand, an address, for sort of thinking about a Jewish world of the past that's not only about Holocaust, right? It's not, uh, but it's about sort of a life lived artistically with mission, with purpose, with vision. I mean, that, that's what I think what's the most interesting thing. It, 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 it's the ability to see, there is still a prophetic possibility when reading a poet like Sutzkever. Sutzkever, sorry. So, other uh, questions, comments? Please. Did he, speak, did he ever speak Hebrew when he lived in Israel? Sure, yeah, he learned, he learned Hebrew. He actually knew Hebrew as a child. He was one of the, uh, he actually went to a Hebrew-Polish school um, so even though he spoke Yiddish at home and wrote Yiddish poetry, he knew Hebrew. Uh, he also knew Polish very, very well. And he loved the Polish uh, 19th century romantic poets. In fact, m wrote several poems not only uh, about them, but even translated Polish poetry into Yiddish, which was why leaving po Poland was such a betrayal and a trauma for him. He had invested so much in the possibility of some type of Jewish-Polish symbiosis, uh, and it all sort of fell apart. Yeah. Why did Israel want to banish the Jews? Why didn't they celebrate it? Well, I think that it's uh, the language of the ghetto. It was the language of the past. It was the language in their mind of weakness. It was the language of martyrdom. It was the language that had opposed Zionism early on. But I think that you know, different cultures oppose things. I think once you have historical perspective, and it shows their cultural um, lack of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, anxiety rather than their confidence, right? It, it, it was not a confident, it was not yet a confident culture. And when you're not confident, you react in ways that can be exclusionary. One might say the same thing about why hasn't there been a greater um, embrace of Spanish in the United States. Certainly as a superpower, we could afford to be a little bit more generous towards Spanish speakers to, uh, to allow for public education in Spanish and to have those possibilities. And I think it, 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 it speaks about as powerful as one might be this inability to accept cultural hybridity and multivalent voices is an expression of not power, but an expression of weakness. So I would say that the, obviously the history of Yiddish um, in Israel is a vexed history, but it's much more complicated than we think. It's true that public gatherings of Yiddish were essentially banned and it was discouraged, um, but Yiddish was treated like many other Jewish languages that immigrants brought with them to Israel. They weren't any more tolerant of the Arabic or Persian, for instance, or Turkish that Jewish immigrants brought with them from those other places. There was, or, or, or the Polish speakers or German speakers. There was a huge fight very, very early on, soon after the founding of Tel Aviv, uh, when sort of the iconic um, gymnasium, Gymnasia Herzliya, was built there, the first Hebrew high school. Because before that was built and before that fight was had, the assumption was that many of these immigrants were German speakers. Well, of course, you were going to educate your children in the language of European culture, and that language was German. And that was, no, no, very early on, sort of the language of that space, the language of Zionism, the language of ingathering, the language of return to origins, the only language that could transcend uh, Jewish history in time and space, and the only language that you, would you could build a culture based on immigrants and refugees on could be Hebrew, right? Because if you didn't insist on Hebrew, 
Well, the Poles would want to speak Yiddish. The Polish Jews, the, the, the Jews from Yemen and, and Iraq would want to speak Arabic. The Jews who are German Jews would want to speak German. The Jews from here uh, would want to speak that. You had to have some type of language policy that would integrate this community. Of course, the effects of that is that you have tremendous cultural loss for all of these languages. Uh, Israel's starting to recuperate that. There's a huge boom now of interest, not only in Yiddish, but in Mizrahi, um, Arabic poetry, and, and, and these things are sort of coming back. Cultures work like a pendulum on a clock. If they go too far to one side, they swing back before settling. Well, no, they wanted Hebrew because they thought that it was native to that space, uh, which makes, you know, uh, sense. Uh, but, of course, it came with its own... Right. Yes? Uh, on the topic of uh, does Yiddish matter, <laughs> and you can help me with this, but, uh, because I'm, my Japanese isn't that good, but uh, there was a Japanese linguist mm -hmm. who wrote a Japanese Yiddish dictionary. Mm -hmm. Recently. Uh, and this was in the 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, 28,000 word Yiddish Japanese dictionary, which uh, is housed in a lot of the uh, major uh, houses of learning throughout the world. And are you familiar with uh, that work? I'm familiar with the dictionary, but there's, there's, there's so many interesting things that are going on nowadays with Yiddish dictionaries. Sort of, there, there, there's an amazing new online dictionary and major, the first major English Yiddish dictionaries in, in a generation or two have recently just come out. And they're amazing works not only of linguistic research, but also of cultural research. So there's, obviously there's Yiddish, there's a fairly new dictionary of Yiddish and French, there's the Yiddish-Japanese um, dictionary, there's the Yiddish-English uh, dictionaries, there's new Yiddish-Hebrew dictionaries. The one thing that we don't have, which is in a way a, a huge loss for the field, sort of counterintuitive, the Yiddish-Yiddish dictionary never really got off the ground. That is a Yiddish dictionary in which the word is in Yiddish and the definition is in Yiddish. They only got through the letter Aleph but it's multiple volumes because there's so many Yiddish words in Aleph. And that's an amazing thing. But the history of dictionaries and Yiddish is really part of the standardization of the language and the ability that allows uh, people like me who weren't born into it to navigate the culture. And the more dictionaries there are, the better, because they're all different. They all, they all find new things. Have you seen this dictionary? I've seen the, the Japanese dictionary in the library, but I haven't, yeah. obviously, I don't know Japanese, so it doesn't do me any good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Evidently, uh, Heard Museum hmm? has a copy. Interesting. As well as U of A hmm. and ASU. Okay. And it's there. Well, there must be people who want it. Yeah, people who want it will see it. It's good. Uh, but... He said, in terms of uh, why is Yiddish uh, viable, he said to him, Yiddish is full of puzzles. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it wasn't just a, a, a word, but where the words led him. Well, and yeah. 
Yeah, there's a, there's a mystery and there's a spirituality uh, to, to the language. Yeah, so I wouldn't, um, uh, I'm very hesitant to endow words or languages with any type of esoteric feeling. So whether, whether there's a mystery or a spirituality to Yiddish any more than uh, what other people will say that Yiddish is inherently funny. I don't think a language is funny or spiritual any more than other languages. I think the people who speak, them, who speak it and use it will use it in different ways that will make it as uh, such. But I think that it's true in the broader sense that a language is a key to a culture. And uh, in order to understand a world, you need to somehow inhabit its language, or at least know that language. And if you're unable to understand it, you can't follow the directions where that language takes you. Cynthia Ozick writes about this when she's talking about the challenge of Yiddish in translation. So in her story, Envy or Yiddish in America, she says uh, about translation that Eliyahu Anovi is not the same person as Elijah the prophet. Right? So if I had to translate Eliyahu Anovi, it would be Elijah the prophet. But she says they're not the same. When a Yiddish speaker talks about Eliyahu Anovi, there's a whole host of embedded assumptions about what Eliyahu Anovi is, what Eliyahu Anovi represents, that just isn't there if you say Elijah the prophet. It, Elijah the prophet, she says, is like someone you could meet at a supermarket. <laughs> Who is, wh what is that? What is Elijah the prophet? You know, Moshe Rabbeinu is not the same thing as Moses, our prophet, our teacher. You know, what the hell is that? Moses, our teacher? <laughs> what is that? So language is sort of a pathway to a culture. It opens up cultures. And I think one of the things that in our increasingly unilingual American culture, one of the great losses right now is the fact that we don't require not only competency, but fluency in more than one uh, language, other than English. We should require students to come out of high school fluent in at least one other language, and also on their way to learning a second language, second foreign language. And the fact that those things aren't necessarily required in most universities is a crime. How can you live in a global culture which is increasingly anglicizing without in some way gesturing towards that which lies beyond English. So it's a huge challenge, and I think that you know, any language that one learns is a key. Did he have a family? Yeah, oh yeah, he married. His wife was with him in the ghetto. She escaped with him to the partisans. She lived with him in Moscow. She eventually uh, made it to Tel Aviv. He knows uh, he had children. I know his, uh, one of his granddaughters, uh, who was, uh, an important, played an important role in... Uh, producing that film and also uh, did a play about him. And not only the film that was produced in Israel in Hebrew, for which I showed you the poster, but I suspect that within the next six months to a year, there'll be another film produced by a former uh, Smith College student of mine that's being put out by the Yiddish Book Center that focuses on his granddaughter and sort of the third generation Israeli who sort of grew up without any Yiddish. Imagine growing up in Sutzkover's household and knowing no Yiddish because the culture deemed it unimportant and uninteresting. Uh, so she's sort of, there's all these home videos, and my student, through the Yiddish Book Center, goes and makes a movie sort of about, you know, Yiddish grandchildren, recuperation, who this person was, what this person represents for Israeli culture. In many ways, he's the best unknown Israeli poet ever. And he's starting to now be known. The big goal is to get, you know, streets. Lots of streets. You've made it in Israel when there's lots of streets named after you. Yeah. The partisans, was that part of the movie Defiance? 
Well, there were, there were many different bands of, of, of partisans. But, so he wasn't part of that band. I think, which, I think, the, part, I think the defiance was about the Belsky brothers, if I'm not mistaken. So he wasn't part of them, but he was part of a different band of partisans. Sure. I grew up in New York City until I was 25, 30 years old. I was a third generation. My grandmother was still alive. Mm -hmm. She was from uh, Hungarian, Austro-Hungarian. Right. She spoke Yiddish. My parents never did. Mm -hmm. And I, I just wonder that if there's been a study of New York as opposed to the rest of the United States. I mean, I've been out of that area for 40 years, and it's different. I mean, there's no, nothing that was like New York was in the 40s and 50s. They had enough people. I mean, it was mm -hmm. almost like Israel. I mean, there was great movement of people from Eastern Europe right. to, to New York. What happened to Yiddish? Well, the story of Yiddish in the United States is a whole different um, lecture and a whole different conversation. But um, the pressures and enticements and promise of American culture eventually led to the situation that you described, where you have one generation that comes with Yiddish, uh, a second generation of American-born children who might have a little Yiddish or know that their parents are speaking Yiddish when they don't want them to understand, and a third generation who are completely illiterate uh, in Yiddish. Uh, so now, if we go ahead you know, three, three generations from that, I think that there's a really interesting return. But Yiddish occupies different spaces nowadays. So if we ask the question why Yiddish matters nowadays, and we don't want to come at it from a poetic or literary vantage point, but from sort of where is Yiddish or what is Yiddish today, well, if we want to, New York still plays a huge role because that's where the largest concentration of Yiddish speakers in the United States still live. They're just not the Yiddish speakers of Sutzkever's world. They are the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox community, who have returned to the origins of Yiddish as a inoculation against influence by the broader culture. So speak Yiddish so that you don't speak English, so you don't get the ideas that English brings with it. Uh, but because Yiddish, by the time Sutzkever was writing, and for most American Jews, was the language of Jewish secularism, was the language of the Jewish worker, was the language of Jewish radicalism, was the language of anarchism, was the language of uh, Yiddishkeit, of Jewish humanism, and of the Jewish left. It's a complete anathema to those, to even, to, to people who come from that world, to even recognize the legitimacy of some people still speaking Yiddish today who may not look or sound or have the same political or religious commitments that they do. So the question of is Yiddish dying or dead, no, it's actually, there's actually more kids being born into Yiddish now uh, than there were uh, a few decades ago because of the rise in birth rates of these communities. But is it the type of people who would ever open a book by Sutzkever? Never. Would they ever read Sholem Aleichem? No, not until they leave the community. So it's a, it's a completely different world that we're talking about. There's, a, a, there's some formality to it, though, because, as I say, I, you're right. Um, I mean, the only things I know in Yiddish are Kalemthi Yink and things that mm -hmm. I was called by my grandmother. Right? You know? <laughs> it's, uh, I went to Hebrew school, and it, in my local Hebrew school, the teacher was the um, teacher at Bronx High School of Science of Hebrew, right. which was taught as a, as a language. And to the extent that I was a good student at his Hebrew school, he said, if you don't pass the entrance exam, I can get you're done. in as long as you take Hebrew. Right. You know, 
what was I going to do with Hebrew if I wasn't in Israel? I mean, that's, that's not exactly... Oh, you're killing me. What are you going to do with Hebrew if you're not in Israel? I can read religious words, but... No, that's so that's good. Not, I don't, I well, okay, I'll come back and we'll talk about Hebrew another time. <laughs> but there were two other hands here, one and then two. Yeah. yeah I, I think in terms of this resurgence of Yiddish, we were in New York and saw Fiddle on the Roof. Yeah. Where the, the uh, translation is... The super title. Yeah. The super titles are in English and in Russian. Right. Which I thought was very interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. And um, there was an interesting interview with Joel Gray, who didn't mm -hmm. think this was going to take off. He thought this was going to be a very small, right. off-Broadway thing. Right. And it's... No, it's huge. And it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. The, the, uh, and there's been some really interesting scholarly articles about why. Like why this, in, why, why Fiddler on the Roof, obviously done uh, on Broadway in the 60s and in the movie in the early 70s, about the Yiddish-speaking Jews of Eastern Europe, but produced by, you know, good American Jews, um, and, and made in English. And why the need nowadays to reproduce this play and translate on Broadway and on off-Broadway an English language play that everyone could understand and put it into a language that no one understands with English subtitles and why all of that has taken off. And it's part of that thirst for authenticity, even though, of course, it's completely inauthentic. <laughs> the play itself is a manufactured vision of that world. So now you're translating an English language play about a world that didn't exist back into Yiddish because people assume it's more authentic, even though they don't understand it. I mean, think of how crazy that is. <laughs> but, it's, but, you know, it's a show, and it's an experience, uh, and it's an amazing cultural moment. All of these spaces exist. Why is it that Yid Life Crisis, which is a little sort of YouTube show done by two uh, guys who grew up in Montreal, who make, who, what, what sort of 20-something and 30-something young people are making shows about dating uh, in Yiddish nowadays? Why? For whom? The only people who can understand it are the people who can read the subtitles underneath it, so why not make it in English? Well, because no one would be interested in it in English. It wouldn't be interesting. But in Yiddish, it becomes something of a fetish. It becomes something of a cultural moment. And then when they invite Mayim Bialik of Blossom and what, what's the show? The Big Bang Theory, and we find out that Mayim Bialik also can speak a little bit of Yiddish, then it sort of goes off the screen. So you go from Fiddler on the Roof to, to, to podcasts and uh, web television to the introduction to the Cohen Brothers, A Serious Man, all done uh, for ten, to Shtisel in Israel, in which whenever Shtisel speaks to his mother, it's entirely uh, in Yiddish, to different novels nowadays being written in the English language, but about Yiddish whether it be Michael Chabin's Yiddish uh, Policeman's Union or Dara Horn's The World to Come or Gary Barwin's Yiddish for Pirates or um, Peter Manso's Songs for the Butcher's Daughter. All of these things are, in a way, sort of as if Yiddish worlds, as if Yiddishlands, because it actually means something. And I'm not even talking about the, world that I, the worlds that I inhabit, which actually try to teach uh, high literature and language to students. Those are also sort of Yiddish spaces that have their own rhythm. So there's a lot of interesting work and, and manifestations of a, of a desire for a new type of culture out there. And I think we're only at the beginning, not at the end. There's also a lot of music. And a lot, yeah, and of course there's, yeah, the, there's the acoustic culture of Yiddish. What country and what year did Yiddish originate? Was it Russia or Poland? No, Yiddish is not an Eastern European language. Yiddish. Uh, no, no, but I'm saying it didn't originate in Eastern Europe with Polish or, 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 or Russian Jews. 
No, Yiddish uh, is a thousand years old. The earliest uh, example of Yiddish writing we have is from the 14th century, but we know that it's earlier. So it's a very long language, but it, it, it originates in the Rhinelands. Uh, so it's a central, even West Central European language. And Yiddish becomes an Eastern European language when Jews migrate to Eastern Europe. So people take languages with them, right, as we know. And, but it's, an, it, it's become associated with Eastern Europe because that's when it, uh, that's when it encounters its, a huge, its, its heyday, right, with vast Yiddish-speaking communities and then the development of modern Yiddish culture. But if one looks at pre-modern Yiddish culture and early modern Yiddish texts, the imprints on those and where they're published are not Warsaw, Vilna, Odessa. They are Prague, uh, Amsterdam, uh, certain places in northern Italy, places that you wouldn't associate with Yiddish speakers necessarily. So Yiddish becomes a Slavic language or is Slavicized as the Jews move into Slavic-speaking lands. Other questions, comments, interrogations? Yeah. I'm sorry. In various locations use the Yiddish differently. You know, the way you were pronouncing it was the way they pronounce it in Lithuanian. Right. Mine's a Lithu Mine is not even a Lithuanian Yiddish. It's a constructed Yiddish. I know. I, I had a friend who grew up, she was a young teenager in the early 40s. Right. And she said when they were kids, I mean youngsters, they used to go from door to door and collect, but she called it chlorus. Yeah, so, so the, uh, Yiddish itself is a language, but like English, it has many different dialects or pronunciations within it. So there's Polish Yiddish, there's Lithuanian Yiddish, there's Galiziana Yiddish, and within those groups there are also sub-dialects. Because my parents come from Galicia. So that's so going to be a different Yiddish. Different. Exactly. And when my friend, when, when she was talking every time, she, she would say, Azay. Exactly. But my, my mother would never, would say, never that. say that word. Yeah, so there are even words that exist in one place in Yiddish that don't exist somewhere else. Excellent. Yeah. And, and then she ends up in Yiddish, and I'd actually answer her mm -hmm. what she was saying, but I'd answer in English. Mm -hmm. And I know my vocabulary word-wise, I know a lot of words, I can't put it together, but it bothers me because, you know, they were so interested in anything Yiddish mm -hmm. my parents went to. They would know this tonight, they would be here, you know, and they never taught it. Right. It's such a shame. Right. You know, but so now it's time to learn. Well, yeah. Sure. Right. So you need to spend a month. You need to take a vacation and spend a month at Yivo in New York or at Tel Aviv University or at the Book Center. So It'll be a way. And there's and now within a few years, the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst is publishing a new Yiddish book, and it's it's intended to be used with online learners. So I think that there are going to be the Workman Circle already does this for years. They've done Yiddish courses online. But there, I think there's going to be a vast expansion of opportunities for people like you who are 
in some way heritage listeners of Yiddish, not heritage speakers, but heritage listeners, to then re-engage um, with the language at your own speed and at your own time. Right, exactly. Spoke when they didn't want us to know. And you, the truth is, you could always figure it out after a while. Right. It would, it would come back to you so, soon enough. Anyway, Maybe one last, yeah, one last question. Yes. I was going to ask the foolish question of the night. Yeah. Thank you for the leader. <laughs> so it, it's a twofold question. One is personal. Do your children speak Yiddish? No. No, my children have nothing to do with Yiddish. <laughs> but I'm not, a, but remember, I'm not. Yeah. Because uh, Amy and I are blessed with a fair number of grandchildren mm -hmm. here in town, and we're involved in a reform synagogue, and I kibitz with them a little bit. I don't speak fluent Yiddish at all, mm -hmm. but I know enough for my parents and grandparents speaking it. So when you go online and you go, 40 Yiddish terms that everybody should know, right. I think we all know these. So I, you know, I've got a couple of grandchildren that uh, uh, that, underst that understand gay back and mm -hmm. gay cocking up and yon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're supposed to understand and know their own little secret code. Right. But here's my question because you're the expert. What, where do you go for the things that you at least want them to start to hear and know besides those ridiculous things? Well, it's hard. There's not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of great schooling or resources nowadays for sort of younger children to learn Yiddish from scratch. So I would say, you, apart from going to you know, a kinderland camp, if, they, if such existed, which your parents went to, of course, aside from joining, uh, once they get old enough into their teenage years, a workman circle uh, class or other online resources, it's very, very difficult. You're right. And in some cases, it takes until one gets to college to really be able to lean into some of these questions. But there's places, for instance, like Yiddish Farm. There's an immersive Yiddish Farm, sort of where, where um, at least college-age students uh, can go nowadays. But in terms of the resources, if you don't have a Yiddish teacher working with you or a fluent Yiddish speaker, it becomes very difficult. Oftentimes, uh, when we want to use these things for our own students, I have to go back to like old Yiddish primers that were used in Yiddish schools for English speakers. From the 50s or 60s or 70s. The truth is, it is fun for them. Yes. To get a feeling for these different older Jewish words sure. that, they, that they know really are Hebrew. Right. And, and but there's other things. Better words, yeah, and there's other things that you can read to them going very slowly. So, for instance, there's a new translation of Yiddish, the Yiddish Curious George. There's a Yiddish translation of the Little Prince. So, if someone knew some Yiddish, and uh, Winnie, uh, yeah, Winnie, Winnie there, Pooh. Uh, if, if someone was willing to sort of take some time, there are even real books that could be used in a, in a very, very effective way that they would also recognize. But it's not a, it's not, I think that we're built, we're, we're at the stage where that stuff is being built, and a lot of the Workman Circle institutions have been using these things for years. I'm not an expert on those, so I, w I always direct people to their resources if they're looking for sort of that younger age. I think there's like Yiddish stuff. So I think that I think uh, we're going to end with that. Thank you for coming out and thank you for having me.
Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.